With a 6 million euro funding grant from the European Commission, the Primrose Project builds on a bottom-up, clinician-initiated family of clinical trials which have been successful in bringing up inclusion rates to offer additional lines of treatment. I'm Dwayne Schultes, and on this Vital Health podcast, I'm speaking to two Primrose Project managers, Keitel Taskin of the Oslo University Hospital Institute for Cancer Research and Bettina Rill of the Stockholm School of Economics Institute for Research. Hello, you two. Hello, Bettina. Hello, Keitel. How are you guys doing? Hello, good to see you. Always nice to see you too. Keitel, Primrose, it's investigating the implementation of drug rediscovery protocol, multi-center, multi-drug, pan-cancer platform trials. What a mouthful. (laughs) What exactly does this mean in easy, digestible language? We have these drip-like clinical trials. When you say drip-like, what does that mean? Drip is uh, the original Dutch study, the drug repurposing protocol. And at the moment, there are seven such trials running in Europe in different countries, and there are more starting. And the reason for that is that these trials uh, are modeled on the DRIP trial in the Netherlands for the reason that they started in 2016. When they first reported in 2019, they had a higher inclusion rate than had been seen in other bigger implementation near precision medicine trials. But there are a lot of clinical trials. So what makes this one different? Why is this one, I mean, if it's so successful, what what is the secret sauce? This is implementation near. Uh, It's uh, investigating drugs that are already on the market for some major cancer indications and it's exploring their use outside the label, hence the term rediscovery. That type of trial can go widely in the nation, meaning that it will be available to many patients. So this serves to train the population of oncologists in the countries to train the system for uh, implementation of precision medicine. Bettina, from what Keitel just told us, the secret here is the ability to repurpose and grab a bunch of drugs and then try them in new novel ways, which the DROP project in the Netherlands did very successfully. I would think one of the challenges then is how do you build up these joint cohorts? How do you make how do you make this make sense? How do you actually manage this? So I think of the drop-like trials as uh, well. I call them always medical TikTok. So it's something the Dutch colleagues published the product, uh, the, the protocol, and it be it went kind of viral because the the needs that the Dutch colleagues had was not unique to the Netherlands, but was felt in other countries as well. So and the protocol is a pragmatic, uh, quite simple design, and it was really tested for implementability so that it would work in many settings and not just in a tertiary hospital but could be easily implemented to ensure equity which I think is something that we all should be striving for. So what happened is that the other country just took the protocol and ran with it and they modified it slightly but because it came all from this original one they kept the underlying bow plan if you like. So the basic design stayed intact. And at some point they realized that everyone's better off if we work together. And because they had kept the basic design, it's relatively easy conceptually to now work together, although these are independent units. So Keitel, from a practitioner standpoint, is the fact that these have a known safety profile, these are drugs that have been developed from your standpoint of building the cohort design, does this make your job easier? Yeah, because these these are drugs that have been used. We know that they're safe and it's quite easy to go outside the label and try them in other indications. We do see that we can reach uh, rare cancers where the industry hasn't documented and they can be tested adding treatment lines in the experimental setting to um, different rare cancers and other cancers and the ones that have been documented. How exactly is Primrose going to work as a project in general? 
The Primrose project was set up to help these trials on a European scale, you could say. The DRIP trial wanted to share their protocol uh, and encouraged other countries to start, and other countries started because it was a good model. But the reason why many countries wanted to do the same protocol uh, is the fact that the design of the trial with many cohorts specific to the biomarker uh, and also specific to the drug fill quite slowly because a lot of things in cancer become rare if you look both at the biomarker and the diagnosis. Yeah, and the, the, more you, the more you stratify everything can yeah, become so an orphan. So, yeah. so each of these trials is a cluster of you know phase one trials going outside the label and if we have similar organization we set up a platform that's primaries to aggregate the data from the different national trials we can build the evidence faster, we can fill the cohorts faster and find out what's working and what's not working. So you could say this is about casting the net much more widely in Europe to find the patients that can fill a particular cohort, to find the patients with rare biomarkers, you could say. But you're testing multiple different indications, multiple different endpoints. How are you going to manage the fact that every trial will essentially have its own design and its own endpoint. How do you deal with that? Bettina, let me start with you. How do you pull that together? That's not entirely correct. So the first thing is that um, the trials, because they copied the original design, they kept some of the endpoints. So there's a set of shared endpoints that um, everyone has in addition to specific endpoints. So it's not that they're totally random. It's um, so there's a shared backbone that everyone has. And the primaries will help us to A, um, join the data together, but also address other common like components that we need in order to be effective at European level and it's not going to be multiple 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 it is at the moment um, colleagues are going through the early cohorts and see whether there is something that would be promising to escalate to uh, an expansion cohort which we want then would be jointly recruiting so there will be a specific actually we have to build four joint cohorts but these will be specific then will not be all over the place so there will be four defined cohorts that we all work on together and the defined cohorts will be more like single arm phase two trials. Sure. Uh, if the original cohorts are like phase one trials. So you're building on these drop-like clinical trials. And I understand that each DLCT, drop-like clinical trial, is governed and financed differently. But now you're starting to collaborate practically. How's that going to work? Primrose and uh, this other project called PCM3U, which is about organizing the diagnostics, and that's funded not by the Cancer Mission, but by the Europe Beating Cancer Plan, EU for Health, together sort of helps governing a consortium that are two different projects. Now we're looking at the independent governance structure that will survive, you know, five years of funding and set up a more stable... <laughs> we uh, hope. <laughs> yeah, we hope set up a more stable <laughs> clinical trial network, you could say, and something that could uh, live for a longer period of time. Then we got to take one cohort by the... You know, one biomarker definition at a time and see how many patients are in different countries. How can we fill this? So we're not going to put all the data together in a big mess. We're going to do this in an organized fashion on a data aggregation platform that we're now building. Obviously, our firm... We do this for clients and we work internationally and that is really hard to do, particularly when you're dealing with different clinical trial jurisdictions, different platforms. I mean, even how you measure, if you use universal units, if you use milliliter metric, I mean, there's some huge challenges here. How are you going to manage the data collection then? I mean, it sounds easy, but this becomes really challenging. So in the first six months, we made the data sharing agreement and the data sharing uh protocol and the sort of paperwork and agreed on what are the parameters that we will aggregate. We will be aggregating the clinical endpoint data. That's just about to start now. 
and then we are also going to research whole genome data that are in the trials and that's going to be done in the federated fashion those data are not going to move in order not to sort of you know go across different legislations so that will be an encapsulated program that will go to each country to sort of investigate or look for the same, you know, look for specific biomarkers in the whole genome data of different patients, for example. I think it's important to understand that this is not yet another multinational trial that someone tries to organize because people somehow in their mind always have this idea of a central spider controlling everything yeah and that of course makes it highly complex and you have to go into jurisdictions you don't understand so what makes this project so unique is that this works the other way around this is a bottom-up initiated initiative that is organized in a distributed way where everyone is working in parallel according to mutually agreed standards. So that's why this is actually a reflection in our logos. If you look at our logo, both from Primrose and PCM for you, there's an empty middle. And this is exactly what this is about. It is about equal partners coming together, agreeing on how we work together, and then everyone goes home and fixes their own part in the country that they know best, where they're familiar with the legislation. And just to build on it, it's too simple to think of it as a trial. This is much more than a clinical trial because it already integrates advanced molecular diagnostics with a decision-making process in some countries over a national molecular tumor board then that leads to a decision a matching treatment and an outcome collector and these these this setup is already quite impressive but then it is also embedded further with a collaboration with decision makers going from regulatory agencies hta bodies and payers and only their side is integrated into research setting so this is an entire system we call it a trial out of i think tradition rather yeah. than anything but it's not really but it's more trial. of a methodology really in some respects call it whatever you like yeah. we still need a good term <laughs> <laughs> and then up to now each trial has interacted with industry separately it's been um, negotiation with different industry partners see what drugs could each trial bring in uh, and typically the pharma partners would then provide free drug they would pay a per patient cost uh, like they would for any clinical research e actually. E yeah. exactly and we would agree on inclusion and exclusion criteria for different drugs that would go into the national trial and also they would allocate a certain number of treatment slots that we could have at our disposal so what we're trying to do now is also to see can we offer another route to access drip-like clinical trials jointly so that there is uh, more like a single point of entry, uh, parallel similar contracts or one contract uh, allocation of the treatment slots floating between the trials so that you know the treatment slots would go to the country that finds the patient with the biomarker first. That would also increase the effectiveness of the operation and lower the sort of cost of, uh, you know, negotiating. Or, yeah. uh, uh. And so that's interesting. So it's not just about the design of the actual clinical trial. It's about the back office. It's about the mechanism on how you do it. It's how you approach the partnership. It's really a that's paradigm system. shift. It yeah, well, that's system. interesting. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned something I want to get back to. You pointed out that this would be in a federated system. Now, that does set up something of a technical conflict because more and more of the drugs are becoming orphan drugs, stratified therapies, targeted therapies, or orphan indications. And that gets really difficult to do in a federated data set because sometimes, you know, we're currently working with a client and they have 50 patients globally. Now, there's no way you could do that federated. So how do you square that circle? In the data sharing agreements, we aggregate the data and merge them for the clinical endpoints, the normal clinical data that are in the trial. The federated research we reserved for whole genome sequence data. Okay. Because that's much more complicated legally. Uh, and you don't really need to have all of those whole genome sequence data 
aggregated. Uh, you, you just need to have the results of whether, you know, could you find a particular set of biomarkers in there that would explain why that cohort or why certain patients in that cohort were responders or non responders. And again, this works because these are known drugs with a known safety profile, etc. Yeah. 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 Bettina, yeah. And we're going to build on the work of the Beyond One Million Genome Project. Some of our colleagues have been have been in the uh, deeply involved in these projects, so we're not starting from scratch. We're not uh, inventing anything new. So we're building on expertise and um, hope to uh, put this into reality, not just a concept <laughs> yeah, in real life. It's not a talking shop. <laughs> no, <laughs> Europe it's not doesn't a talking need, shop. Europe does not need any more talking shops. So we've been here all day, and there's been quite a large group, actually. Mm-hmm talking about quality of life metrics and how we're going to manage quality of life and different metrics and methodologies and everything. How are you going to develop and at least implement health-related quality of life metrics? Are you building new tools? How are you going to do this? (laughs) No, No. of course not. No. (laughs) So uh, we just had the colleagues from the ERTC here and they told us that it takes six to 10 years to develop a new quality of life tool. And besides, why would we want to do this actually? So the project doesn't run six to 10 years. (laughs) (laughs) No, but why would you, I mean, this is not our purpose. We are about implementation and bringing precision medicine to patients. So we're going to use the the best available. Those metrics need to be uh, validated and calibrated uh, uh, etc. So I think we, we will use uh, standard metrics where there is uh, the best we can find. Long history. We, we may add things from libraries that ERTC yeah. have uh, to adapt and you know pick up what uh, stakeholders think are the most important. And that was the purpose of the discussion today. Uh, so you're comfortable that existing off-the-shelf tools are going to work in this context? Absolutely. Of course. <laughs> Goes without question. <laughs> so we're here in Oslo, and obviously a beautiful day and a great meeting. What is the primary objective and goal of this particular meeting? What do you want to get out of it? So um, this meeting actually uh, based on a concept called Community Advisory Board or actually European Community Advisory Board that the HIV community um, invented, I think, even back into back the 80s. Um, as most will know that in my other life, I'm running the Melanoma Patient Network Europe. So I've been looking for some time for useful concepts. And there the idea is that the community advises and that setting pharmaceutical companies um, on the design and the conduct of, of a trial. So when we, um, so among the shared endpoints in the Drupal-like clinical trials, unfortunately so far there is no joined, um, no common quality of life um, endpoint. So we had to find one. And something that has personally always irritated me is that we talk about quality of life. Everyone agrees quality of life is important. But then if you go and try to understand what people mean by it and what they want to use it for, everyone has a different angle to it, what matters to them. Uh, that's then what creates tension and where we then get stuck in the end, we under we can't really we, we're not making progress on something that everyone claims to be so important. If you use an ICER, that'll have a different metric. The patient will have a different understanding. The practitioner will have a different understanding. The industry partner will have a different understanding. Everyone looks at quality of life With from a, different a totally lens. different lens. So the point in this, the, the way this meeting is structured is that we really have the different groups here. So we have patients here, we have clinicians here, we have regulators here, we have HDAs here, and we have payers here. Unfortunately, we lack industry. But what we've been really doing is we're going, giving everyone, like we're focusing in each of the perspectives and trying to understand what matters. And then the goal for tomorrow will be that we're s- trying to find the overlap. So how can we come to a solution where everyone finds this useful for their respective setting? So in an ideal setting, it would be impactful for everyone. Keitel, then from your perspective, what do you hope you have 
to play with as you have to administrate this and put it in practice? What do you hope to get out of it? I hope that we have some consensus on what would be the good quality of life measures. You, you know, some that are standard, that are validated, established, that will help the regulatory authorities, that will help the payers. Uh, some that you know patients feel are the right ones to sort of actually capture what what do they experience on the trial and some that clinicians feel are necessary side effects uh, adverse effects that could be dangerous where the, where they will need to act early or things that where they need to sort of really follow uh, what's possible and then also not extend the list uh, to infinity and yeah. uh, introduce uh, not fight fatigue as a side effect, but fatigue. Uh, yeah, de- fatigue. De- dealing with questionnaires, right? Well, because the problem yeah. is, I mean, you can once you start expanding this and you go into different jurisdictions, it can it can balloon out. It's exponential. I mean, the complexity can run off the track. It can go crazy. You, you cannot put that to patients. There has to be a set that's sufficiently defined that they are willing to do it not only once but also several times during the trial to see what happens. So what I love about this setup really actually is that this is pragmatic. So every other thing has to work. And this like the this is about um, recommendations and a, trying to build a consensus on what my, or trying first an understanding before you can build consensus. But this is about capturing recommendations to the principal investigators of the respective DLCTs who in the end are responsible for the trials. So that this has to be a group decision within the trial but wi- wi- among the PIs of the trials. And they're the ones who in the end have to collect it. If they say we will never be able to collect this this thing is dead and i love this you know it has the reality check so you can wish for whatever you like feature creep feature creep but if the clinicians say never gonna work it's dead and i love that is based in reality so do you think that the regulators are going to be flexible enough and the payers and everyone who's involved is going to be willing to adjust i mean because that's always been a knock of trying to do new things in europe that's always been what's been the criticism i think we have qualified people that not necessarily represent the regulators but you know if they're not here they are regulators and payers also uh, that give very good advice uh, it's not an official standpoint but I do think both regulators and payers are, are moving gradually uh, in this domain and things have to be somewhat different if we are to implement precision medicine even in cancer because a lot of things are rare, uh, it takes a long time to find the patients, it takes a long time to build the knowledge about what's working and what's not working. And if you're going to wait for you know three randomized clinical trials for any payer to be able to implement, uh, it, it may never reach patients that have, particularly if they have somewhat rare cancers. But actually, I think that's the wrong approach. We're not trying to move anyone. I think it's more the other way around. We are trying to understand what their approaches are, what they're concerned about is what their constraints are, what they're looking for. And we are rather trying to make sure that our the way we design this fits their needs yeah. or addresses their yeah. needs. So we're yeah. not trying to convince anyone of anything. Every stakeholder has a valid interest. And it's more understanding where they're coming from, what they're looking for, and whether we can make it fit in our setting. And I think that's more our approach we're taking. Yeah. Uh, What's been the feedback of the regulator? What's their opinions been? I think it's just like in our specific setting, we are, we, this is about repositioning products or sure. like repurposing. So there is no real regulatory angle. So we are rather looking like in the future, if we ever wanted to go there, what one would have to consider. Yeah, um, and what pharma would have to consider. And because we produce data that would be in the public domain, it's investigator-initiated trials, but it's also possible for pharma to acquire the data. It's important that the data quality is good enough. And we could also entertain discussions with pharma and regulators uh, 
about these type of publicly generated data and we do need there is public interest here in this domain because uh, pharma by itself has difficulties implementing precision medicine it's complicated you need the diagnostics you need reimbursement mechanisms you need molecular tumor boards uh, you, you know one pharma doesn't necessarily have all the drugs that the molecular tumor board needs uh, and which is why in this domain, public-private partnerships are needed. So what are the next steps in the project? Where are we going to be? So so first, like, this meeting isn't over yet. So um, what, we're what we're now going to be is, like, we're going to reflect or write up, actually, the positions and the recommendations that came out from every stakeholder. So what matters for each of the groups that we're going to formulate? And after that, we will have actually have to make a choice, which will be the tool. I think that we already learned quite a few things which um, are not directly actionable. It's more looking forward. For example, um, that uh, also quality of life ne analy uh, analytics need to be prospectively planned. Um, it's about building comprehensive and conclusive data packages so that the quality of life aspect is not they, it's not an isolated factor it is like it has to inform the rest of the data package so to think more strategically and like uh, to think of a full data package and that as a part of it instead of instead of a standalone one i think that is something for us to to really think about and there's something i'm personally interested or personally excited about is that part of primos we have colleagues from the um from the ema um, running a project a research project uh, like a regulatory science project on stability of patient preferences because we are often accused that patient change that we are at the, I mean this is an end of life setting these are patients who have no other option left and this is access to molecular testing and a match drug is available and often um, there is the worry that we are inducing toxicity at end of life that doesn't result in any benefit so looking at whether patients um, how patients feel and think about it before entering the trial and to see how stable their preferences are in the trial is really really important for us because we want to make sure that we don't hurt or induce damage but that we can be confident that this is matching patient preferences and i'm personally very excited that we can they were able to do this within uh, within primaries and then to answer your question from a more overall perspective of sure. the whole project since i'm the coordinator it's going to be about aggregating data from these trials, uh, and that's capitalizing on all the data that's already there to see what cohorts can we fill, where do we have evidence. Uh, it's going to be about finding and leveraging real-world evidence type of data that can go into control cohorts uh, to, to match that. We're going to design these phase two trial-like expansion cohorts. The project has funding to select and operate four of them. We, the network can do more, but we have funding to select four. So it's going to be about uh, defining those. We know what the first one is. You're going to have to find the next two. You're going to have to also you, you know, negotiate that with the pharma partners, uh, collect that type of data. There's going to be the parallel operation of the social innovation work package that Bettina runs, the parallel operation of healthy e economics, uh, and uh, what are the... Uh, different authorities' demands in terms of payer preferences and payer needs to sort of decide on reimbursements, etc. We try to sort of serve the community by this type of approach. It's a huge amount of work. And something that, uh, just to add on this, that in this project we only we don't only have project partners, we actually have quite a number of affiliates who are like coming from countries that don't have a DLCT yet, but who are very interested in building one. And what I really like is the collaborative um, approach that others can join and learn and take part in our activities, so they participate in our work packages and to help um, others to get started and hopefully get precision medicine into 
also into other countries that don't have it yet. And I, f I find that's a particular strength of yeah, our project. And they're also looking for more funding for those countries. Uh, so if people wanted to get involved, how do they reach out to you to see if they can participate? They send Jadil an email. Yeah. <laughs> send, you, send you an email. Great. Well, what's the email address? Uh, it's uh, ketil.tasken at um, medicine.uio.no um, We might want to spell that out. So. <laughs> uh, Ketil. Uh, K-J-E-T-I-L dot Taskin, T-A-S-K-E-N, at... Medicine. Not English spelling, but Norwegian spelling. The Norwegian spelling, which is... <laughs> M-E-D-I-S-I-N. Medicine dot... U-I-O. U-I-O. Dot N-O. Dot N-O. Okay. We'll make sure we put that in the body of the email <laughs> so it goes out. But, you know, the questions I'm going to ask persons that approach me then is, uh, do they represent the national initiative? Are they looking at uh, or motivated to start the trial? Uh do they want to work with the European uh, initiative, etc.? And uh, we need those people that are willing to work with the European network, but that also that are willing to build or have a national network. Because it, this, is not, th this cannot be about uh, individuals that want to profile themselves or individual institutions. It has to be about uh, individuals that want to work for a sort of overall objective and sure. you know, for their country to see if... Uh, they can help build uh, something for the whole country. We want people who care about their patients. I would hope that would be the case. <laughs> there are some people who are able to move mountains in order to do that, and we need There's those some. people. Keitel Taskin and Bettina Rill from the Primrose Project, thank you very much, and I wish you all the best of luck. Thank Thanks you so for much. having us. Thank you so much, Jade. The executive producer of the Vital Health Podcast is Dwayne Schultes. Our editor is Mark Brodeen. Our project manager is Gweno Laughlin. The Vital Health Podcast is a production of Vital Transformation, LLC, copyright 2024.